Hey everyone! Welcome to episode 295 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen, with your host, Matt Payne. This week on the podcast, I had a great time speaking with Jay Rasmussen, a photographer from Minnesota. Jay is a retired college professor where he spent 30 years training other teachers. Jay is relatively new to the photography scene, but has found wild success selling his work at art fairs. In this week's show, we talk about Jay's entrance into photography, how he arrived at selling his work so quickly, tips for other photographers looking to monetize their work, and some excellent discussion and practical insight relating to teaching photography. Before we dive in, I want to mention that this week's episode is brought to you by Nature Photographers Network. NPN is a great community of like-minded people, and they're super generous with their time in helping each other improve their photography. There is just an incredibly helpful critique forum for multiple genres of nature photography, and I personally try to respond to as many images posted there as I can. And I know a lot of other photographers like Alex Noriega, Sarah Marino, and Eric Bennett, who are also providing excellent critique over there. For just $49 per year, you can join the community on NPN and gain access to some incredible benefits, including access to fantastic articles, webinars, discounted tutorials, software, books. They have so much stuff up there, it's amazing. I can't wait to see you there. Just go to npn.link forward slash fstop to join. You can use the code fstop10 for a 10% discount. We'll see you over there. Let's get to this week's episode with Jay Rasmussen. All right, Jay Rasmussen, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks, it's great to be here. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's going to be exciting to talk to somebody from the Midwest, which doesn't get a ton of attention these days. Mm -hmm. You know, it's usually people from California or Arizona, Colorado, but uh, Minnesota, that area, not usually the case. So... I think it'll be fun to talk to you about that. And, uh, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Yeah, of course. So for people that aren't familiar with you and your photography, would love for you to tell us uh, a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, like you said, I'm from Minnesota, and uh, we call this the land of the, the chosen frozen, is <laughs> how we refer to ourselves. Yes. And. Um, Believe it or not, there's a surprising number of really skilled photographers in this area. And in Minnesota particular, we have something called the North Shore, which um, is um, basically the west side of Lake Superior and spans all the way from Duluth up to Canada. And uh, I would say most of the serious photo landscape photographers in Minnesota are up on the North Shore uh, doing a lot of their work. And there is a reputation, believe it or not, in Minnesota of um, when people come to do our art shows, you know, for example, some of our biggest shows are uptown in Edina, and there literally are some other landscape photographers that are scared to come to Minnesota because there honestly are so many good photographers, you know, in the state of Minnesota. And uh, so it's a pretty, pretty competitive place when it comes to doing art shows anyhow. And I, I would guess that yeah. most non-Minnesota photographers don't have a huge body of Minnesota photography. No, no, no. <laughs> it's like anywhere. A lot of it's getting the timing right, weather conditions right. Right. You know, if, if you're going to get 
eight foot rolling waves on Lake Superior, you've kind of got to be here for a while before right, that's going right, to happen. Right, right. Yeah. But a little bit about me. I'm uh, actually an old geezer. I'm uh, 69, 69 years old. Um, I'm a retired college professor, uh, taught elementary school for eight years, fourth grade, fifth grade, um, was a building principal, and then uh, college professor, training teachers for about 30 years. And then um, I've only seriously been doing uh, photography since I turned 60. So hmm. it's been about nine years that I've been doing you know, more serious landscape photography. Um, I do it full time right now. I retired as a professor and actually can make a living, you know, doing landscape photography, selling prints of all things. And I do that primarily by uh, going to juried art shows, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Illinois, Michigan. Um, I've done a number of shows down in Florida, you know, some things out west too, but uh, yeah, I'm uh, married. I've got two kids that are both travel junkies, just like me. One's 34, one's 27. And uh, I live in a 1916 farmhouse right in the Twin Cities area. And uh, we have an old barn that's now converted into gallery space as well, too. Uh, my free time, I like to do some wood turning. Uh, I just picked up that hobby last winter and... Uh, it's just great to have a change of pace from photography. And uh, I love working with wood and still feel connected to nature when I'm turning bowls in addition to, you know, traipsing through the mountains. That's super interesting. My, um, my dad's actually from Minneapolis. Ah. And his dad was a woodworker. Like, huh. that was his hobby. He would uh, craft all kinds of, um, it's hard to describe, but he would make, like, circus pieces. They would have moving parts and stuff, mm. but it was all carved out of wood. And he would do, like... I don't know, like porcupines and clowns and mm. all kinds of stuff. But then he would go out to like art shows. You know, this is probably back in the 60, 50s and 60s. Yeah. And he would sell his his woodwork at these kind of local craft craft shows. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah. I think there's a strong tradition of arts and craft shows there in the Midwest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're very Scandinavian here, as you say. And uh, yeah. Yeah. So a lot of a lot of people connected with nature and really understand nature and understand wood. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, would love to hear your story about how you even got into landscape photography because it sounds like, like you said, is pretty new to you and you know most people they fall in love with nature and blah 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 blah. But it sounds like your story is a little different. Mm -hmm. Well, the part about falling in love with nature that that did happen. You know, when I was actually a little little boy. Um, yeah. We had a cabin that we built on a lake in northwest Wisconsin. And every summer I spent at that cabin, you know, out fishing and hunting and traipsing through the woods and so forth. And uh, I always had an interest in art, had some interest in photography, but nothing, you know, nothing out of the ordinary. Um, and I really didn't get serious, like I said earlier, until about 10 years ago. And um, it was sparked by some time that uh, my family had living in Norway, in Oslo, Norway. Um, I had a Fulbright Award to do research at the University of Oslo. This is back in 2002. And um, the Norwegian work ethic was much different than what I was used to here in the States. And as a professor, you know, I typically was putting in a 60, 70 hour a week. The Norwegians know how to live and uh, 
they might come in the office 10 o'clock and they might be done at three o'clock and uh, weekends they're out, you know, skiing, hiking with their families and so forth. So anyhow, I had extra time on my hands in Norway and I figured I wanted to learn how to do watercolor painting. Had no idea how to do it, no, no teachers I could find. So I found some books, just started doing it, trying to figure it out. And after a while, I couldn't find any pictures that I wanted to paint. I was trying to work off other people's work. So mm. I figured, mm -hmm. all right, I'm going to go take some of my own pictures. So I've got a subject matter. And uh, started in with photography and found out I actually really enjoyed it. And I was maybe better at doing the doing the photography than I was as a, you know, as a rookie watercolorist. But yeah, I was um, gonna say, anyhow, like the results of the results of picking up a camera and getting that immediate gratification is totally different than mm -hmm. being a painter for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So anyhow, I was there with my um, daughter who was in eighth grade. My son was in third grade. We put him in Norwegian schools. They spoke no Norwegian. Uh, turned out to be a great experience for them. We came back to the States. Fast forward now, my son and I, when he was 18, we watched a documentary called The Long Way Around on PBS. And it was about two guys who literally rode their motorcycles around the continent. Mm. Now they had to fly you know, over some of the oceans. But my son and I watched all five hours of this thing. At the end of it, we turned to each other and said, we gotta do this. And uh, my kids are half Mexican and I wanted them to learn more about, you know, about their heritage, their culture, Latin America. Yeah. So we said, let's do a long way down. And uh, so I spent about a year planning out a trip from Minneapolis all the way down to Buenos Aires. Oh, and wow. uh, it was a ball. I had a great time, you know, figuring route, learning history, learning geography, learning culture. And um, my son, unfortunately didn't know how to ride a motorcycle before we left. So we bought two used KLR uh, 650s, carbureted bikes, and uh, I figured I'd better get my son comfortable on this bike before he's right in the middle of, you know, Lima, Peru at rush hour, you right. know, not knowing how to shift or anything. And uh, so we did a tune-up camping trip around Lake Superior, and then he wanted to do a run and gun thing all the way out to the West Coast from Minnesota. So he made me do this 11, no, it was over a thousand miles, about 1100 miles, like in one day. And he felt great about it. And I, I thought, never again do I do this on a KLR <laughs> 650, you know. But, but anyhow, so we got ready for the trip, um, did the trip, and it best experience I ever had in my life. Um, it was 71 days to get down there. Uh, we did about 12,000 miles and we flew our motorcycles back. We didn't have time, you know, to ride all the way back. But on this trip, I wanted to document what we were doing and had a pretty large group of people following us on Facebook. And honestly, I think most of them were listening because they wanted to know if we were going to be alive, you know, from day to day because... <laughs> people's images of Mexico and El Salvador and Guatemala and Colombia, you know, generally speaking, you know, they are thought to be the most secure places. 
But anyhow, so we we started this trip, and about every three days, I posted photos, and then one time I would write a narrative, the next time my son would write it. But the whole time I was doing the photography, I was really trying to show um, the good side of Mexico and you know Central American and South American countries, really trying to dispel you know a lot of the beliefs, you know a lot of the prejudice, you know lack of understanding people had about the very geography, you know, in a country like Mexico or Colombia or, you know, Argentina, for example. And uh, my son, you know, only put up with so many stops on a motorcycle. So each day I had to make it count. You know, I got three, four stops in, did the best I could. And um, to make a long story short, <clears throat> we got all the way back. And within a day, we started planning our next trip. We were not ready. We felt like we just could have kept riding. But uh, my my wife kind of didn't buy into another trip. We were, <laughs> we were actually planning India, and um, hmm. and she just wouldn't go for that. So so it kind of put a kibosh on that. But I showed some of my pictures, and then pretty soon people said, "Oh, you should sell these pictures." And I thought, "Oh, it's not that easy. You know, it just is not." But uh, my daughter convinced me to try one one art show. It was in a mall that was not very well attended, and we set up a booth in there. Had no idea what we were doing, and uh, I I kind of made my made a pledge to my daughter that if we can sell a thousand dollars worth of stuff in three days, I'll consider doing this. You know, I might do another art show. Sure enough, three days is over, and it's right about a thousand bucks. So now and I'm you're like, this oh. thing. <laughs> so I applied for some of the top shows right in the Minneapolis area. And to my surprise, I got in, which really shocked me. And uh, my first show, I wound up doing great. And I thought, man, this is a piece of cake. And uh, then I realized a couple shows after that, this is not always so easy. But uh, right. but that's uh, the motorcycle trip really kind of spurred my interest in photography. And, uh, and then I just went whole hog after that. You know, I just tried to teach myself Lightroom and when I get into something I really get into it and you know some people call it obsessive or whatever but I just really got into it and I love travel and um, and I'm comfortable sleeping anywhere and so yeah I've done a lot of shooting in eight years you know that's for sure yeah no doubt I'm curious um, I was, you talked about being retired when you got mostly retired when you got into this and and now you, you're monetizing your work pretty heavily. Uh, have you found that the monetization piece has been a strong driver uh, for you staying interested in photography? Yeah, I would, I would say that it is. Um, I unabashedly say that I, I like to make money. Um, <laughs> and and the, the whole irony of it is I could be retired now and not work, and I would be just fine. You know, sure. I don't need to do the photography. I don't need to do the art shows, but I find it a challenge in some ways. And I honestly feel that my photography grew at a rate that it never, ever would have grown had I not had the motivation of going to an art show in two weeks and wanting to have, you know, some really good work and something that I was proud of and so forth. Um, I've never been one to shoot things that I think are going to sell 
without some internal motivation on my part. You know, uh, I've got to I've got to feel the piece inside. Yeah, I've got to be drawn to it before I'm going to shoot it. So I honestly feel like I've not been a sellout. You know, just shooting icons and so forth. Um, and it's I think the art show stuff has actually helped me grow as a photographer. I do have my own little private body of work that I won't show at an art show just because I know it's not going to sell. And mm -hmm. uh, I still, I just still like to shoot those kinds of things too. No, I think that's fair. I think a lot of people approach it kind of that way. Um, so I'm curious. Let's 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 dive into this art show thing. I, you know, we do have some listeners and other parts of the world that probably are like, what the heck is an art show? Because I don't think they really have the equivalent of art shows in a lot of the world. Uh, we've talked about it on the podcast before, but uh, basically art show typically is like an outdoor tent event, um, sometimes indoors, but you know, people have these booths or these tents and they hang their artwork up and put up a sign and maybe have some incense or some scented <laughs> candles going and maybe a little mood music, you know, some ambiance. And they're manning their post and they're selling work and they have framed and mattered and, you know, metal, mostly metal prints that most people are doing. Yep. Uh, so that's kind of the foundation of what we're talking about, what an art show is. You're doing all juried art shows. Uh, so obviously it's a really nice way uh, to make a living. Um, but I've heard some people, like, it, they suffer miserably. Like, they can't seem to break the code in terms of how to sell work at these things. And... So I'm curious, first, how do you even decide uh, which art shows to even apply for? Right, right. That's one of the lessons that's the hardest to learn. And <laughs> the, the bottom line is it's, it's uh, to some degree, trial and error. And um, just today I was looking back at my records from the first, first year I did shows. And I would say there were one third of them that I would return to, and there mm. were two thirds that were dogs. And uh, those came off my list you know, pretty fast. One show can be good for one artist and actually not good for another artist. You know, it just depends on what your media is and, you know, and what, your, what your audience is. Um, I have found one thing particularly helpful, and it requires spending a little bit of money, but it's a website called, it's called Art Fair Sourcebook is what it's called. And you can sign up for it for different regions of the United States, and you pay for the region. But the huge advantage of that particular site is it gives honest feedback on how much art each um, each individual artist sold, you know, mm -hmm. at that particular show. So you can look and see artists average one thousand dollars in sales after two days, or they average five thousand, or seven thousand, or ten thousand. So it's really helpful at least to see what other people have done at certain art shows. And generally speaking, the higher the return that an artist has, the more difficult it is to get into the show. So there are some shows that are not juried and you can just say, I want, I'm ready to plunk down my $300, give me my 10 by 10 booth space and I'm gonna be there and they take you you're very likely to be next to a grandma who's crocheting socks and selling those on the side. And you'll see some art that you kind of wonder, is this really an art show or am I at a craft show here? What is this? But mm -hmm. um, 
when you get into the juried shows, then there tends to be a much higher quality of art around you in terms of the, you know, the jewelry and the pottery and the other photography, you know, your competitors, if you want to call them that. Uh, but typically the financial returns are much better. Um, one of my best shows um, is a show in Madison. It's called On the Square. And they might take one out of 20 photographers. You know, so you can get it in one year and think, oh, I got it made next year. Nope, you are not in that show because they're juried. And there could be anywhere from three to as many as eight jurors. They all have different opinions on the quality of your work. And, uh, and they're all looking for something a little bit different, too. But anyhow, trial and error is really the big thing. But the, um, you know, the, the website that I mentioned is also extremely helpful, too. So anybody going into it, anybody going into it, I would add too, Matt, that you need to go to all your local art shows first. Just go there, you know, as somebody that's visiting an art show and you've got to look and see how many people are there. Uh, go talk to some photographers. You know, they all love to talk and, you know, they're not sure that you're going to be their next competitor. And, you know, they'll they'll say a few things to you. But right. that's the best thing is just to actually visit a show, get comfortable with it. Picture yourself there. You know, is this the kind of work I'm going to have, you know, that's going to going to work for these people? This website you mentioned, Art Fair Sourcebook, uh, are those uh, is it, are those data points anonymous or are those actual people that you recognize their names? or The the numbers are compiled, so you can't to can't tell who said what or how they rated a particular show or how much money they're reporting. You definitely cannot see that. You know, so the data is all aggregated, and uh, but they do get actually really good return, and their numbers tend to be quite accurate. I've, yeah, yeah I've, just... I think it's well well worth the money. You know, one show can make the difference in whatever it costs you. I was just thinking in terms of it being a helpful resource. Like if you saw a list of people who were at that show and you recognized their work and you kind of compared it to your own work in terms of the style or genre yeah. or whatever that might help you understand like oh i don't think i'm gonna do very well here or mm -hmm. oh actually i think i could do well in this one so so do you kind of know who's been at those shows and done well or yeah anybody that's on an art social circuit uh, particularly photographers you you learn the other photographers and right. <laughs> in minnesota we've got a really tight group and we actually really like yeah. each other and <laughs> yeah, I Wilson, heard it's not always the case. <laughs> yeah, no, it's clearly not always the case. There's like one guy I prefer to stay away from, but yeah, sure. for the most part, we're we're good friends. So <clears throat> one thing that is helpful if you're considering a show, you can go on their website from the previous year. You can look and see every photographer that was there. You can go to their website. You can look at their work and see if you think you've got you know something that's you know that's going to compete in some way. Uh, you want things that are different, though. You know, that's just like the book you put together. And, uh, you know, you need clearly some iconic type things. But having some something unique is, is really important as well, too. Mm -hmm. That's where some of the small, you know, some of the small scenes can come into play. And people think they don't sell. And it's not always true. You know, some of my best work is really my best sellers are, you know, smaller scenes. Mm -hmm. So, uh what kind of an investment is it to kind of get started started in the yeah. art show circuit? Mm -hmm. Well, it's not cheap to get into. So I'm 
I'm currently mentoring two two young photographers and a third one just starting. And what I tell them is pretty much what I learned is it's about a ten thousand dollar commitment, you know, to get started. Right. Um, I recommend just buying a decent tent right out of the gate. Buy a used one though, and I would suggest a trim line tent. Um, they have steel poles. They're actually made by artists, so they know what's necessary. I've been through a 75 mile an hour wind with hail, and my trim line was still standing. And at the end of the show, there's there's a pile of tents that are as tall as a tall as a house. They're all bent, you know, with aluminum frames and so forth. So I would buy a used trim line. If you see for some reason after a year or two years you don't like art shows, if you made a good investment, you're going to sell it for exactly what you paid for it, or perhaps right. even more. Um, you are going to have to get enough art printed to fill three sides. So all the booths are 10 by 10. You've got three walls inside, so you need to have enough art for the three walls. Um, what you decide to print on is absolutely critical. You know, you can do a normal frame thing, you know, with typical prints, you know, with glass, you can do canvas, you can do aluminum, you know, it's really dependent on what you want to do and what matches kind of the style of work that you have. So you're going to need to have, you got to have something on your walls. You know, you can't sell things that aren't on the wall. And then you've got to decide, are you going to carry back stock? So if somebody likes, you know, this Mesa Arch image that you've got, along with five other artists that are there, but yours is better <laughs> maybe, um, do you take it off the wall and hand it to them? Do you tell them, I'm going to ship it to you, and it's right. going to cost you the shipping, or am I paying the shipping? You know, so you've got to decide if you want to go there with inventory or if you want to do what's called drop shipping. And that's right. where you have, you know, the image shipped directly from your printer, you know, to whoever purchased it. And right. there's people that go both ways with it. I, I tend to carry all my inventory and I've got a pretty big van. I can go on the road for four weeks in a row, sleeping in the van and still having enough art. And uh, I yeah, all my work count. is on aluminum. Um, it was a pretty quick call for me after halfway through my first year, I figured out that this aluminum for my vibrant images is just gonna sell a whole lot better than canvas. So yeah. um, one of my best friends, another Minnesota photographer that I'm gonna recommend, his stuff's all on canvas. And he does all the framing and his work is beautiful. And it has a little more of a painterly look, you know, when you're on canvas, you know, versus the aluminum, which gives you, you know, a good bit more vibrancy. And yeah. uh, my work is pretty heavily influenced by living in Mexico and a lot of travel. So I'm, even though I'm so Scandinavian, I have to tell people, you know, when I'm happy, they can't tell by looking at me, but uh, I'm, I'm drawn to color. So I'm one of these weird Scandinavians that, that likes color. So for me, aluminum works. That makes sense. And I feel like the Sprinter van thing is like a whole other piece of investment. You know, you're looking at I don't know, I'm guessing at least $60,000 to just get a nice van set up. I'm just yeah, the guys, that, but. the guys I'm mentoring, um, you can, you can, I sold one of my vans, one of my old vans to one of the guys I'm mentoring for uh, $1,200. <laughs> you know, the, the van, he had 212,000 miles on it, but it right. was going to get him to an art show. So it was a Honda Odyssey van. He can pack his whole tent in there. He could pack all the stuff he needed in for an art show. 
So you can do it do it on the cheap. I know another guy that he just borrows somebody's van, another guy who rents a van. Right, yeah. right. But that makes sense. Most people don't make that that sprinter move or the I drive a transit. You know, they don't make that move until they know they're into it three, four, five years and they know right. they can make it, you know, financially. Because most people don't. Right, right, right. That makes sense. Uh, how much work is it for you to actually sustain your business throughout art shows full time? Yeah. It depends how much you want to work, honestly. Um, <laughs> if if I were to go on the road, you know, 45 weekends of the year, I mean, I could make I could make a lot of money, you know, by a lot of money, I'm talking in excess of a couple hundred thousand dollars. You know, that's I'm just talking me. I'm not anything I say is just my experience. It's sure I'm not no guarantees anybody else would do that. But um, in Minnesota, we've got a really short art season here. So I've got to make hay from May until basically the end of October. So for me, that means an art show basically every single weekend. And you're kind of giving up your summers, your weekends, anyhow, you're giving up time to shoot, you know, on the weekends. Um, but it is our prime time here. What a lot of people do from here, Minnesota areas, you know, they'll add in a Florida circuit or they'll do some things in Arizona, New Mexico, you know, that kind of thing too. You know, so right now, you know, I do anywhere from 15 to 20 shows, you know, a year. And I just try to pick the better shows. If I pick the right shows, I can do better in 20 shows than I could do in 40 shows. Honestly, that's how big the difference can be. Um, but the high-end juried art shows, really tricky to get into. You've got to have a really good booth photo. You've got to have really nice work to show them. And it's got to be something out of the ordinary. It can't just be the same old thing, you know, at the really high-end shows. Okay, well, maybe that's a good segue to talk about what you think sells at art shows. And I, I have a, I have a follow-up question to that, but let's hear that part first. Sure. So I'm going to throw it back to you, Matt. So what do you, what do you, what do you think sells at art shows? I think, so honestly, like you were saying, I think it depends on the show. And it probably depends on the region that the show is in. Um, if I had to guess, there's probably a preference for work that's local, sort of. And I would also have to guess that there's probably a mixture of people doing really well with, like you said, uh, the classic scenes like Mesa Arch and that sort of thing. Um, but I also think there's a, a really good market for super unique images that um you know are unusual or might have some metaphors going on that connect with people in that way so i think the answer is there a lot can sell but it depends on the show and it depends on the artist and it depends on probably how you present it as well but mm -hmm. you tell yeah. me you sound like you know what you're talking about matt <laughs> maybe it's time to go on the road for for 50 weeks oh, of the year, see, right? See, the, the giving up your weekends thing and, <laughs> like, you know, my son's in high school, so, uh, you know, maybe when I'm in my 60s, that sounds pretty awesome because I probably won't be climbing a ton of mountains in my 60s. Mm -hmm. um, probably won't be, you know, there's 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 some things to look forward to later in life for sure. Yeah. But, 
Yeah, absolutely. Not right now. <laughs> yeah, no, I hear you. You're you're in a perfect niche right now because, in my estimation, you've got the best podcast there is. You know, related to photography, and you've got access to some amazing guests too. So keep you're providing a service that's pretty amazing. I think so. I I oh, appreciate it too. Yeah, yeah. I do think you're right on the money, you know, in terms of what does solid art shows. And my my experience is that <clears throat> every show is different, and I literally plan differently for every single show that I do. Hmm. So I design my walls out ahead of time. So, for example, if I'm doing a show, um, I do a number of shows in Chicago, actually. So for me, it's a six-and-a-half-hour drive. About half of my shows are in the Chicago area. Hmm. Um, if I'm doing a show right downtown Chicago, uh, Old Town, for example, or Millennium, you know, I'm doing some urban landscape kind of things. You know, hmm. I better have a few Chicago images in there, but yep. they better look different than every other Chicago image that's there. And um, so I'll have in Chicago, I'll have more urban things, you know, than I would. If I'm in a, a juried art show that's a really high end show. I can go with things that are more artsy and mm -hmm. not necessarily just the iconics, you know, of, you know, of the, you know, of the West or of the Twin Cities area or Minnesota, Wisconsin. If it's not a, you know, not a real high end juried show, then I'm going to go with some things that I think the average public might be a little bit more interested in. So we have a waterfall, um, you know, a number of waterfalls in Minnesota that, you know, Gooseberry Falls, for example, that everybody in Minnesota knows it. And if you have a good picture of it, most art shows, you got a chance of selling it. Lighthouses, we have something called Split Rock Lighthouse. Every photographer, you know, three years old and older has got a picture of Split Rock Lighthouse, you know, in every weather condition, you know, every moon phase you could ever imagine. But uh, many shows, I won't even take a Split Rock image. You know, I just let other people have, you know, have it. But I think, you know, to, the big answer to the question is that people have to have an emotional response to an image when they see it. Mm -hmm. And you could have the best image that's ever been shot, that's won all kinds of contests, and you could literally never sell the thing because people, they can't, they may not be able to relate to it. They may look at it, they may be intrigued by it, they may love it, but they won't buy it because they can't relate to it. For example, when I first started doing art shows, I had some stuff, you know, Lake Moraine area, even north of there, that before a lot of people were shooting it, and boy, I thought these are cool pictures. I show them back in Minnesota, and people, oh boy, look at that color, that's amazing, where'd you shoot that? And we have this 10-minute discussion, and then they buy a Split Rock Lighthouse, you know, because it's something they relate to. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so people have got to have an emotional reaction to it in some way. And for me, I need to shoot the same way. I have to have some emotional response. It's got to be something going on inside me. And, uh, and if I match that up with, you know, people finding a piece, you know, that really resonates with them, you know, then we've, we've, got, a, we've got a really good match then. Um, how you handle yourself in the booth as, quote, a salesperson is absolutely critical as well. I would say the person in the booth can make as much of a difference in sales as maybe 40, 50%. Mm. Um, anytime I have other people try to sell my work, you know, in, you know, I'm going to be in the Mall of America or in a tent, 
it's really a tough sell because folks want to hear the story. They want to know all the background with it. So mm -hmm. how you handle yourself in the booth is absolutely critical. And I'm shocked at the number of artists that'll sit in their booth in a little chair in the back or outside with their face buried in their cell phone and people walking in their booth and they're not even acknowledging them and uh, they're just waiting for them to come, you know, to buy something. And right. it just doesn't go that way. You, you've really got to engage with people as well, too. Um, yeah, that makes sense. The, the one thing I'll one thing I'll add on that line, too, is um, I, I really don't, quote, sell when I'm in an, in an art show situation. All I'm trying to do is three things. I'm just trying to tell the story about the piece. I'm, that comes first. It's always the story. And then I'll talk a little bit about the materials. And I print on Chromalux aluminum. We do all of our own printing. We build our own back for them. I show the back to everybody. You know, talk to them about actually about how it's done. Most people that print on aluminum can't talk about it intelligently. You know, right. so I tell them how it's really made. They want to know that. And then last thing I'll ever talk about is price. That always that always comes third. And some people want long versions of this. Some people want short versions. Right. You literally have to read every person. And um, for me, my teaching background has helped a bit in terms of reading people, knowing, you know, when it's time to shut up and when I've got an engineer there that wants me to keep going and going and going, talking about dye sublimation. And right. <laughs> I love it when somebody and the wants exact to know temperature that, or a photographer and, yeah, that wants exactly. to know, you know, about, um, you know, focus stacking or whatever. And then they never buy anything. But, you know, it's a, it's a fun conversation, though. So I think it's interesting you're talking about how depending on where you go you might choose different images to bring with you for that particular art fair and you're talking about bringing a waterfall image or a, or a cityscape image or you know a, f a photograph from a lo this location or that location and I've I think that's be one of the things that I would struggle with the most is like I don't have any interest in photographing Chicago cityscapes right so um, I would probably never do an art show there. Um, yep. So that kind of led me to think about um, how do you photographing for the intention of specific art shows while maintaining truth to your own kind of desires and wishes as a photographer? Right, right. Yeah, super good question. Um, I actually do like doing a little bit of architectural type things, but <clears throat> most most situations, I, I'm just not that interested. Chicago does have some pretty amazing architecture in it. Sure. And I've, I found a couple things that I really, really liked that felt like true urban landscapes, you know, something original. And, um, and I, I knew that I wanted to get um, a skyline shot, right, of Chicago. Mm -hmm. I knew it'd be good to have one of those. But I wanted to get something unlike anything anybody else had had. So I've got a friend that lives in Chicago who's actually a naturalist and knows Chicago inside and out. So I worked with him. He told me about a place um, to go, harder than heck to find. Um, I'm climbing over a fence and, <laughs> and I'm, you know, borderline legal, illegal. And... Uh, and I got, a, I got a shot that I've never seen anybody else have of Chicago, you know, of, of all things. And I focus stacked it. 
It's got it's got some beautiful flowers in the foreground, which mm. you never think of on, <laughs> with the skyline of Chicago. Right. And uh, you know, it's just a fun shot. Um, another building that intrigues me, you know, is is Wrigley Field. Oh, and sure. J- just the history of it, um, just everything surrounding it, you know, has has always interested me. Mm-hmm. So I said, all right. I've got respect for this architecture. This is something I'm going to shoot. I've not shot any other stadiums, never planned to, but I loved Wrigley Field. Okay. And uh, so I went there early Sunday morning, literally stood right in the middle of the road, directing traffic around me, the front of me, the back of me, that kind of thing. So you're that I'm, I'm, I had to be that guy at that <laughs> time, or I'm just not going to get the kind of shot I wanted. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I wound up, you know, blending a couple images and got just a really cool shot of, you know, of Wrigley Field. And I did a select color thing of it. So I'm not, I'm only going to shoot what I like still. So, and I never really shot any Chicago stuff until I saw that my work was received pretty well there, Mm -hmm. my normal landscape. And I kind of fell in love with Chicago. And uh, so I did some, I did some real things there of, you know, work that I'm, that I'm proud of too. I think but, that's um, I think that's a really interesting topic to dive a little bit deeper into the relationship between our intrinsic motivations and our intrinsic motivations because I think for some photographers there's almost, you know, 100% intrinsic motivation like they're only interested in, you know, like like Guy Tal, for example, right? Like yeah. I don't probably see Guy Tal photographing Chicago cityscapes in his future. No, That's no. probably not going to be a thing no. for him, but he's also not super interested in showing his work at art fairs either. So no. I would think that that kind of extrinsic validation that you're receiving at the art fairs is then playing off of some of your internal drives to create work that's going to do well at some of those shows. So I think it's it's an interesting mm-hmm. relationship that we have with those two competing uh forces you know absolutely yeah and for for me philosophically part of part of why i shoot is i want to bring some beauty from the world you know into lives of people and into people's homes and when somebody buys a piece of my work and i'm sure you've experienced this too when they buy something that you know that you've shot you know one of the 14 or whatever um, and they put it in their home you know which is a very personal place to me, that's really rewarding. And I've had people, um, right now I've done this long enough where every art show I go to, about half of my sales are to people that have bought from me before. Mm-hmm. And just to hear the people when they come in, and I can't always remember, and it's kind of embarrassing, but they'll start telling me about this piece they have and how much it means to them. And, and I've had people break out in tears, and especially older people, that are in their homes a lot, you know, for them to see some of the beauty of, you know, it could be national parks or just any kind of natural setting. It, uh, it just brings, you know, peace, tranquility to them. And, uh, and my work, I think for the most part is, is pretty calming. So, you know, so when it comes to motivation, you know, it's, I'm clearly internally motivated. I'm externally motivated. You know, I, you know, I want to sell some stuff if I'm going to work my tail off and, right. People have no idea how much work it is to, you know, to, you know, the day before you go to the show, 
setting up and it's 90 degrees and it's <laughs> right. getting dark and your tent isn't set up and you get all set up and then it rains <laughs> and the show goes on you know and yeah. nobody comes for half of the day and you're sitting there and you've just spent $900 you know for you know for a double booth space or whatever you know so there's there's hard times too but to me I get some I get some um, some real joy in knowing that I have shared some beauty that many people are never ever going to see in their lives so that's to me that's part of what keeps me moving as well too <clears throat> yeah it's 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 so funny right because i think there's some people that are less motivated by you know some of those external variables um or maybe they're just sure. not as honest as we are but <laughs> you know yeah, like i did a i did a book signing this summer and it was like super hot outside and they did it outside mm -hmm. and of course like three people came or something you know yeah, what i mean like it not was not surprised yeah but those three people that came they got to hang out with me for like an hour mm -hmm. just me and had mm -hmm. asked me all kinds of questions and they shared all these stories they had of the yeah. places that are in my book and stuff like that so you know yeah. and that that was super fun and rewarding and mm -hmm. you know yeah yeah i didn't make any money but i got to super nerd out about something i created which is always fun i think you know so yeah absolutely absolutely yeah. yeah and sometimes a slower art show you know gives you a chance just to talk to people a lot more in depth and you know if you've got somebody looking at a picture for a really long time and they're ignoring everything else you know you got to ask them what's drawing you to that right and you know you'll hear a life story sometimes come say, out yeah there's you know, usually a story there's there's pretty much always a story yeah and yeah. uh it's 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 really fun i i thoroughly enjoy it it's exhausting you know a day yeah. after an art show boy don't talk to me i'm all talked out at this point but no it's just it's it's exciting just to meet the people and uh hear their stories and yeah it's fun do you see yourself as a introvert or an extrovert? you know you've talked a lot about this on your podcast yeah, I'm I'm in the introvert category. Yeah, right? okay. I told you I'm Scandinavian, right? So <laughs> right. How many extroverted Scandinavians are there in the world? But so those art no, shows I'm, didn't come super naturally at first. Well, I'm trained as a teacher, so okay, you yeah, know I can talk <laughs> and I can listen, and you have to learn how to read people. I right. mean, that's what a good teacher does. They can look and see who's really interested, who's not, who's sitting on a question, who's got something they want to say. Should I shut up now? Should I talk more? Do they need an example? You know, so, you know, that's that's a big part of it as well, too. Yeah. And uh, I just try to keep it real, keep it honest. I don't go into a sing-songy thing. I don't, I very rarely say the same thing twice. You know, it's, yeah. you know, it's depending on who's who's there. One thing I'm going to throw in, I didn't mention earlier, when you're trying to decide about <clears throat> what's really going to sell, which I think is the hardest thing there is to do. Mm-hmm. I, I've had really, really good luck testing out things on, on Facebook and not Instagram. And um, I've got, I don't know, maybe 4,000 friends on Facebook now. And most of them are not photographers. And that's what I want. I actually don't invite photographers to be friends because I want to hear from the average, you know, the average Joe or Jill or Jane or whatever, yeah. you know. And after I do a trip, so let's say... I was in, you know, let's say I was in Colorado, for example. When I come back from that trip, <clears throat> I'll try to narrow it down to what I think are my top 20 images. And often what I think is my best image is not what other people think. In fact, that's totally. usually the case. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I'll come back from Colorado and I'll have 20 shots. 
I'll do some pretty basic editing with them and then I put them up on Facebook and I'll tell a little bit about my story, where I went. And then I, I, I give them a forced choice situation. So I tell them that out of these 20 images, you can pick two at most three that are your favorites. And if you'd like to tell why, I'd appreciate that. You know, so this is a favor to me. I'm trying to decide which pieces I want to show. And um, people will respond big time. You know, they're helping me out. They, somebody actually wants to know their opinion. And, and I interact with people. So if they give me a reason, you know, I'll, you know, I'll thank them for that or maybe ask them a question or, mm -hmm. or whatever. But what I have found is that that is the best source of information that I get you know, in terms of what's really going to sell and not sell. Right. There are times that I'm such a believer in a piece that I will stick with it a long time because I think it's just, there's got to be the right person for this piece. Right. So, so I'll do that. But eventually I like to think of whatever I have in my tent, it's like my basketball team. And I've got some starters I'm going to put on the floor. All right. So every show... You know, I've got five, six, seven pieces that they, I don't care if I'm in Chicago, St. Louis, you know, up in the North Shore Lake Superior, they're going to be on that wall. Okay. They are proven. They are my starters. And then I have some guys on the bench, you know, and some of them are going to come off the bench sooner than others. And I'm going to watch them pretty close. And if they aren't doing something within two or three games, two or three art shows, in other words, you know, they're maybe on the bench again and somebody else is going to get a shot at it. And um, and I play the same same kind of game a little bit with the size of my pieces. So mm -hmm. in my booth, I sell 8 by 10s I sell 16 by 20s I sell 20 by 30s 30 by 40s 40 by 60s I sell big triptychs. And if I'm not sure of a piece, and it's totally a rookie at this point, it starts as an 8 by 10 Absolutely. And, <laughs> and I, I simply watch... I, and people may not buy it, but if they're holding it, if they're talking to somebody about it, I'm I'm watching that. I'm watching it like a hawk, and I'm listening to what people say. They think I'm not listening because I often will even step out of my own booth, and I'm trying to hear every single comment I can hear. Wow. And being trained as a teacher helps because you have to hear those. you got to know what those kids are up to that are just getting ready to do some mischief. And so I'm listening to everybody in my tent, and they don't have a clue that I'm listening. But all those comments, you know, really feed into, yep, this is a piece I can believe in. You know, i got to give it a shot here. And when you have, you know, I've got over 300 images, you know, you got to figure out which ones go on the wall because there's not that much room in a 10 by 10 booth. So I've been to a few art shows over the years, and one of the things that I've always been struck by, and this actually goes for galleries as well, when you go into a mm -hmm. photography yeah. gallery. Yep. Um, as a seasoned photographer, you know, I'm picking out all kinds of stuff that's wrong with the piece, like, yeah. oh, look at that chromatic aberration, or that's not sharp, or like, yeah. oh, I can't believe they forgot to get rid of that dust spot up there, you know, like, stuff that... We're so meticulous and whatever right. about, or, you know, when we're right. critiquing each other's work, the stuff yep. that we hammer each other on, the public does not see that stuff or care about it, which is fascinating to me. Like, it's almost like the the work that's not as um, meticulously curated almost does better with the general public for some reason. And I never quite wrapped my head around that either it's it's very interesting 
<laughs> Have you mm-hmm. noticed some of that stuff? Yeah, I think it goes back to what I said. I think people are picking art because it's an emotional reaction. Right. They're not. They're they're operating from their heart, not their head. Yes. And I think ultimately that's how we need to operate as photographers: from our heart first, and then our head. But when we're, you know, when we're in an art gallery or in somebody else's tent, I mean, man, we we are we are in in an evaluation mode is what we're in. Yeah, you we're know, in our and head. we are we are totally into our head and occasionally something might hit our heart in some way but you know so we're we're seeing the work very differently i see my work differently like i see everything wrong with everything right you know and it drives me nuts and i even will tell people sometimes so <laughs> if they're considering i will if they're considering two different pieces i'll i'll talk about things that i don't like in my own piece you know cuz i just want to educate them you know, and, um, you know, so I do think there's real danger in over-processing. Um, the, the average person can feel if it's over-processed, you know, and especially when you're on aluminum, you know, it can tend to look over-processed and it might, probably isn't, you know, the aluminum just catches a vibrancy. Yeah. Um, so I think you've got to be really careful not to over-process things. And, and anybody that's spent a lot of time in nature they can just spot it within a second. Like I can just tell immediately if something is off. And if, you know, if they're not a person that spent time in nature, they can get sucked into believing some things, you know, that really aren't quite there. Yes. Um, We had a very vigorous debate on the Discord channel I belong to for uh, for landscape uh photographers today about this issue. Like they were talking about this, this guy who owns a gallery in La Jolla, and they were showing his phone. He like one of the people on the channel went to his gallery, and they're like, "Oh my god, guys, you can't! I can't! You can't believe the sales pitch I got!" And they were saying like nothing's photoshopped, and like then you look at the work, and it's like, "Oh my god!" And um, but to your point, a lot of the people that are going to galleries or maybe even art shows, especially if it's like an urban setting, mm-hmm. they might not have ever been to a place like that in their entire life, so they have no idea, right? Right. Like that's what it looks like, I guess. <laughs> yeah. You know. <laughs> I feel sad about that, and yeah, people people don't know if something's a composite, you know. And I just, I just tell them I don't do composites. They don't know what it is, you know. I'll explain right. what a composite is, <laughs> and I will tell people that I do that I do focus stack, and I'll show them ones that are ones that aren't. I talk to them about why I did it. Yeah, that's good. You know, I've got some waterfall shots that you know it's exposure blended and it's the only way you're going to get that shot you know that's going to look you know that's going to look like what you could see with your you know with your eye so yeah i like to try to educate you know the consumers a little bit too no that's important um, i think yeah they need to know what they're looking at yeah and i think that's why a lot of photography gets such a bad rap is you know it's not necessarily because people are making that type of work it's because the people trying to sell it are passing it off in a way that it that misrepresents what it was you know like yeah oh yeah this was a single capture on film and i didn't do any editing to it whatsoever and like the photographer is looking at it like dude i can see where you blended in the other sky come on you know (laughs) but the people who are photographers they don't they're not savvy to that stuff at all it's going to catch up on them at some point in time oh for sure for sure I, I just, I'm brutally truth on everything I say to everybody because yeah. 
you, I couldn't remember. I'm old enough. I couldn't remember what lies I told anyhow. So better <laughs> off just, just being being true with it, right? Well, I think maybe this is a good uh, segue for us to talk a little bit more about how you've been able to leverage your experience as a teacher into um, kind of the way you think about photography, but also perhaps we can provide some tips for photographers who are looking to teach and things like that. So I just got done being at a, out of Oregon and, <clears throat> you know, we had, gosh, I want to say like 10 other instructors there with me at various levels of their career and whatnot. And there's sure. a lot of people out there teaching workshops. And I think people are always trying to look, look for ways to improve how they teach photography. So yeah. as, as a former teacher and, you know, someone um, who's trained other teachers, uh, I would love for you to talk a little bit about uh, modeling and uh, what's called the gradual release model. Okay, good. Yeah, well, the field of education has all kinds of unique terminology related to it, just like photography does, right? Right. You know, yeah. what, what is focus stacking and, you know, what do some of these things mean to the average person? But yeah, in education, we've got all kinds of jargon, you know, connected with it too. and. You know, so some of where this conversation is going to go, I think, is really geared for people that that do workshops. But also, I would really like to think of everybody that holds up a camera as, as a teacher at some point in time. And it might be their son, it might be their daughter, it might be their brother, it might be their sister. And if it's something that you enjoy in some way and people see you have a passion for it, they're going to be interested. Mm -hmm. And so my comments are not just for those that are going to lead, you know, lead trips, because that's a very limited number of people, you know, that are, you know, that are going to do that in some way, too. But I think, um, you know, I think as an educator, um, it's important that I be a lifelong learner as well, too. You know, I've got to I've got to really model it. And. One of the things I've enjoyed about photography is it's like there's almost no learning ceiling on it. You know, there is so much that you can learn and and there's intuitive things and there's, you know, things you can watch a YouTube video and, and learn real quickly, you know, but it's um, I love it because it's it's such a challenge that we're we're never going to outgrow that challenge. Right. And that's one thing I love about photography and actually about art and bowl turning and so forth, too. Yeah, I was going to say. But, Board of Landscapes, why don't you mm -hmm. give portraiture a shot and mm -hmm. good luck? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's totally yeah. different. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. So anyhow, I think it's important to, to to know what it feels like to be a learner, you know, and to recognize there's times when you're so excited. There's times when you're really scared, you know, and when you're really uncertain of yourself and um, and just to remember what it feels like to learn something new, you know, for the first time. And for me, I feel like a teenager in the field of photography right now. Like if you look at my my work, I mean, it spans, you know, from from shooting old cars that I've lit up inside in the middle of south dakota at 1130 at night you know it spans from that to shooting you know uh you know stack ice up on lake superior to i mean it's it's all over the board right and and i think part of that is i, I shoot what i love you know and i hope enough other people like it too you know but i still feel like i'm a teenager yeah, i'm exploring i'm trying to find what my niche is going to be and i never want to get totally in that niche though i just want to keep you know keep going as a learner but, you know, one of the things I would say for those that teach, whether it's 
you know, people paying you money to do it, you know, or your son or your daughter or whatever. You know, there's some real basic things that I, I think can be helpful, you know, as you, you know, as you're doing some teaching. And you talked about the gradual release model. That is uh, something that was developed by an educator named Madeline Hunter years and years and years ago. And basically what it means is that I want to stand alongside somebody, you know, who's learning photography. And I want to get them to the point of where they're skilled enough where I don't have to be following them around and telling them, you know, well, you should probably have this for your f-stop. And you probably want to, you know, you're probably going to want a 20-second exposure here. You know, you got to be really long. You know, our goal should be really that they uh, become independent at some point, you know, as a photographer and fully able to, you know, to critique their own work and not necessarily, you know, needing us, you know, for technical information or for personal affirmation. Um, but to get somebody to that point, you know, it's, it's pretty difficult because it's a big learning curve. You've got technical things, you've got artistry kind of things going on. So the gradual release model, <clears throat> I think, is, is really helpful in a sense of, you know, what I try to do with somebody, okay, and it could be a group or it could be one person, is I try to set out at least one clear goal, you know, that's, you know, that's going to be there. And that goal could come from them, you know, if I'm working with, you know, with one person. I know you do some private kind of things and very simply asking, you know, what do you want to get better at? You know, what, yeah. are, what are your goals for this? But I think if you can make the goals pretty clear, you know, then it gives you a frame of reference. It gives you something to work from. And I think talking about <clears throat> what the goal is, but also talking about why is that important? Okay, so you want to learn more about using F-stops, okay? I think they need to know, you know, why that's important, you know, and if it's, if you can't give a good explanation of it, it where they can understand, it's probably honestly not very important, you know. So what they have found is that when a learner knows what it is that they're going to be learning and why they're learning it, okay, the learning tends to um, increase in terms of the amount that they learn, but also the speed that they learn when they have an answer to that why question. Mm -hmm. Like if, if we remember back to our time in, you know, it could be high school, college, wherever, if we didn't understand why we were studying something, right. 10 to 1, most of us just shut down. Right. Like our mind is going somewhere else. I was thinking about and, my first, like, trigonometry. Like I understand now why mm -hmm. it's useful, but I think the first class I had, I was like, this has zero utility. <laughs> exactly. Obviously it does, but you know, like if it doesn't get yeah. explained to you how you can use it, it's not very helpful. <laughs> exactly. So that's important to get the why across. And for us, it seems really obvious sometimes. Like we know why F-stops are important that you right. figure that out, right. you know, but they, they don't know all that is some letter, you know, and right. You know, so to get across what they're going to learn and why it's important is a, is a really good step. I think a good second step, you know, would be would be to do some modeling. And what I mean by modeling is it's just a fancy word of way of saying show and tell. Okay? So if I'm going to do some, you know, if I'm going to do something with maybe with focus stacking. Okay? Before I have them pick up the camera and start trying to focus stack something, I'm going to model it for them. Mm -hmm. And when I talk about modeling, what I mean is I'm going to be showing them something but I'm also going to be telling at the same time. Right. But the part that I'm going to talk about is the part that they're most likely to get screwed up on. 
Okay, so that's the part I'm going to focus the most on. So if I've got somebody and I'm working with them on focus stacking, I'm not going to say just focus on the foreground, the midground, and the background. So I'm going to talk with them about, you know, maybe I don't even need to go the midground. There's nothing terribly interesting there that's got to be in focus. So in this case, I'm just going to do the foreground and the background, you know, on my, you know, on my focus stacking. And my f-stop is going to be this, you know, because of these, you know, these kinds of reasons. Right. So the more that you can, you know, show it, but also tell about the difficult parts, you know, that's extremely helpful. The next step after that, after you've had a little bit of show and tell for them, is really what's known as the guided practice. And that's now where we're starting to step back. We're starting to release ourselves from them. So if it's somebody that now that wants to learn how to focus stack, so what I'm doing now is I'm, I'm getting more quiet and they're having to start doing it. And when they're doing it, I'm going to have them talk about it so I can hear what their thinking is. And if they're not talking about it, I'm going to ask them, okay, so why did you choose to focus in on this one particular rock here? Yeah. Like, why are you going for that? Okay, why didn't you go for this over here? Why are you going to this point over here? You know, so I'm asking them questions as I need to. But I like to think of it as the wet cement phase of learning something. So when you're pushed with this brand new challenge where you're having to do it the very first time, it's like wet cement. And often, however you start doing that, once that cement dries, you're kind of locked into that. So because it's wet cement, I want to be giving as much feedback as I can at that point in time. Because if they learn something wrong the first time, the amount of time it takes to relearn something that you learned wrong the first time is actually about double mm -hmm. you know, the amount of what that first time learning is. Okay, so I'm watching them do something, guided practice, and first time they do a focus stack thing, I'm probably talking, I'm asking questions and so forth. Then I'll tell them now, we're gonna do another one now, and I'm gonna give even less feedback here. So keep in mind what we just did last time. Let's see how this one goes. I'm just going to walk, watch. I'm probably not even going to talk very much. I'm going to watch them, watch them. Maybe they're getting a little trouble somewhere. Might ask a question, might give them a little bit of direction. And then second time round, I guarantee they don't have it still. You know, I found that three is kind of a magic number sometimes if you're going to learn something new. Okay, so we're going to go on focus stacking. I'm going to go a third time doing something. And I'm going to tell them, you know, let's see if you can get through this whole thing now without me saying a word. Okay. And then I'd like you keep talking about why you're doing what you're doing. And, um, and at that point, if I see that they're able to get through it, you know, and not need that additional feedback, then, then we take it into independent practice, which really is the last step then. And that's where <clears throat> I may give them an assignment, you know. So I'd like you to focus stack three images um, and, you know, I'd like to take a look at them, you know, in a week or two weeks or whatever. Right. And we're just going to do a little critique session on those or whatever. Yeah. You know, but but it's, it's gradual release because your role, you want to become less and less and less and less. And ideally, your goal is that they're going to be the best photographer they can be. You know, they're not going to be a Matt Payne. I don't want them to be a Jay Rasmussen. You're trying to find out who they are as a person and who they want to be. And um, ideally, you know, if you've got 15 students you're working with, all 15 of them are going to look really different in what they turn out. Right. You know, but, um, you know, but it should be them. 
you know, not we're not all going to line up and shoot the same thing with the same f-stop. And oh, come on, that's stuff. that's what we do in workshops, Jay. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, no. <laughs> no, it's I interesting. Cringe. I think um, that that all makes sense. I think I think where a lot of workshop leaders get stuck um, when I'm when I'm observing other people teach because I don't I can't watch myself teach, but right. uh, but you know I think people tend to try to get a little bit too rigid on the the creativity side of things like it can force people into you know like using rules for example like oh you got to make sure that there's only this much sky and this Mm -hmm. much in the foreground and make sure there's something off-centered over here like and then people just start using these formulas whenever they go into the field without an instructor and then all of their work just kind of starts to look formulaic so Yep. What I like to try to instill once you, they grasp the more technical pieces is mm-hmm. to do a lot of experimentation and like yep. and then evaluate what worked and what didn't work with that experiment and why, mm-hmm. um, and then build upon that um, kind of yeah. like scaffolding, I guess, from a yep. scaffolding creativity. You know, because mm-hmm. what I find is a lot of people tend to stick to those rules, and then and I, I think that can get you into a lot of danger. Yeah. Yeah, I think as a workshop leader, the hardest thing to teach, you know, is is composition. I think for sure. And the technical stuff you can you can easily do, but uh, and I think something's got to be said too. You know, when you you know you look at all the great artists, like you know, how did they all start? They all started copying, you know, somebody else. Right. You know, to that that's how they all started, and then they began to find more of their style and so forth. And sure, you know, and I do. You know, I don't lead workshops. Um, I've worked with some individuals and so forth too, but um, you know, I think you can when you go to set your goals. For example, you know, you might have goals that you're working on this certain aspect of composition. You know, trying to do something with foreground, midground, you know, background, that kind of thing. But you can set another goal and tell them things that they can't do. You know, you can't mm. use rule of thirds in this. You know, you can't do that. You know, so sometimes right. you just have literally have to push people out of their comfort zone. Right. You can only and, use a telephoto. Yeah, you know all of those kind of fixed, yeah. you know, and you can only can... Sh- you can only shoot it at f two eight. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, seriously, I think those are great things. And then I love what you do too, because you know what a good teacher does is they they figure out what worked, right? What clicked for you, and then you do it again. And as photographers, we need to do the same thing. Like, what's working in this image, you know? And how how can I hold on to this, you know, this concept? You know, and build it into some other things right. know, in some way too, and uh, yeah, yeah. And one of inevitably what ends up happening too is people come to you and they show you the back of their screen and they want feedback and they ask you like, "Do you like this?" And the first mm-hmm. question I ask is, "Well, do you like it? What do you like yeah. about it? Like, what is it that drew you to photograph it? Get that out of them, and then talk about how they can improve upon." what drew them to photograph whatever that was to begin with mm-hmm. so you're not telling them that the photo is good or bad necessarily right. because that can really crush people like oh they didn't they didn't mm-hmm. like my photo it's like mm, i'm just gonna try to enhance what you did well you know yeah and one thing that i found in teaching and i'm sure this is true in any teaching scenario like let's say mathematics for example is that if you don't Get the technical stuff, like if that doesn't become innate to you, like arithmetic, right. 
Yep. It's really hard to build on other things. Like if you don't if you don't know how to operate physically operate your camera on a tripod, yep. like you know, that other stuff has to wait. You know what I mean? Yep. Because it's gonna get in the way constantly. So I yep. I keep telling people like the best thing honestly, you wanna become a better photographer? Practice. Go into your backyard with your tripod and all your gear and try to be as fast as you can at, at composing and making images. They don't need to be good images, but you need to become competent and adept at using your equipment. Right. Yeah, because what, what's happening with this is we have a certain amount of cognitive space that we're, that we're all operating with, right? <laughs> right, right. And, and if all of, your, <clears throat> all of your cognitive focus is figuring on focus, like how do I get the focus right here? Right. Everything is going into that. Right. And you're not able to think about the other things. Right. Okay. It's just like the motorcycle trip I was talking about with my son. I had to have my son to the point of where he reacted instinctively in certain situations. Right. He can't think, oh, I've got to, the clutch has got to come in here and then I go down to shift this gear. Yeah, well, right. Then I go up to shift this gear. It's got to all become totally instinctive. And then when that's the case, then you can be immersed in your in your environment and really right. see and really think right i mean think and, about driving a car like um if you can't operate uh you know the gas pedal <laughs> the accelerator and the brakes and the steering wheel it probably doesn't make sense to like learn how to park yet or to mm -hmm. drive on the interstate you know like those things have to become very natural and you don't have to think about them and you can do them so right and, yeah, and what you're talking about with having them go practice all those things, I think that's wonderful. And then I tell people, well, shoot all the way till dark and shoot after dark. And can you do everything in the dark now? Yes. You got to get to that point, or you're gonna you're gonna blow a shot of a lifetime because you're fiddling around with your camera and can't oh, yeah. figure out where something is. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's critical. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit about how being a teacher um, or working in the education field has helped you in becoming a photographer. Mm -hmm. I know persistence is a really big part of learning something. So absolutely, you know, just to stick to it in this. And, and I think it's really critical with photography, you know, and in terms of, you know, even post-processing, someone can get pretty hard and pretty technical. And, you know, for some people, it's a real challenge, you know, so just having that persistence, I think, is is absolutely critical. Um, I also think the ability to critique your own work is absolutely critical too, because you know you're not going to have somebody running around after you all the time, you know, telling you, "Oh, this is good, this is bad." And the very thing you were saying about when you work with your students, they come to you and they want to they want to know, "Is this good?" They want you to critique it for them. You know, a three year old kid will say the same thing. They'll say. They, they will have drawn something and they'll say, is this good? That's what they'll say, right. is this good? And they're asking for the same kind of thing, you know, but for you to turn it back on them and get them talking about it, you know, is absolutely critical. But then I'm, I am gonna add something. I mean, they came to me for something, right? Sure. Yeah. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna add something, but it's gonna be really honest. It might be very simple. Um, but I'm also going to leave with a bit of a challenge, you know, because if they've arrived at a certain point, um, there's something called the zone of proximal development. So if they've if they've got something down now, what is the next challenge for them? Yes. Okay. 
So for you, we were just talking about, you know, just the technical aspects of working the camera. So once they get that down, what is the next step? And learning is, good learning is scaffolded. And you use the term, but what it means in the education world is that there are often certain skills that you need to learn, certain levels of the scaffold you need to get to before you're gonna get up to this, this super, super high level. And for us as educators to figure out what is the next step that makes sense, you know, for this, you know, for this person. Um, and we want to keep them all the time in that area of where they're being really challenged, but not so challenged that they, that they feel frustrated. And if there's too much challenge, frustration sets in. Yes. If there's not enough challenge, boredom sets in. Yes. So that's the zone of proximal development. So what we're trying to do is keep ourselves and our students at that level of where they're continually being challenged. Yeah. But when a student is in that zone of proximal development, doesn't matter if it's us or you know somebody we're working with, that's when that feedback is most critical. Right. Because they're they're least sure of themselves in terms of their, you know, their skills, how they're approaching it. And they, they do need, you know, to hear from us at times too. I think what you said about critique is, is really crucial. Um, I think we have to learn how to be our, our best critics of our own work. I, I'm getting better at it over the years, but I'm still learning how to do that too myself. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask kind of to bring us full circle. Um, you know, at some point I feel like at least in landscape photography, we reach a point, at, most of us reach a point, you know, after maybe a year or two or three, where the photography is pretty easy, you know, but uh, we need like another challenge. And I think mm -hmm. that's where the monetization and like, oh, maybe I want to make a book or maybe I want to learn how to build a website. I think that's how yeah. you can kind of t keep going with it. Because mm -hmm. every one of those types of things that you layer into it, it's going to keep you engaged in photography be, just in a different way, right? Like, yep. Because what, what works for selling photographs on a website might not be the same as what works for selling at an art fair. And what for works sure. in an art fair probably won't work in a book, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think it's interesting to start thinking about what you actually do with your work. And that's kind of like the, for me, that's the ultimate puzzle to start mm -hmm. unlocking and you can take it in so many different directions yeah yeah super good point yeah cool well i guess you know wrapping things up i would love for, for to hear you talk about who you would recommend uh for the podcast and then if you could follow that up with um kind of what's coming up next for you i think you had mentioned something about this huge gallery thing you got going so mm -hmm. We just got me started on the teaching end of things. I mean, I could go I for really, really long. We can do some more on Patreon. Okay, I'm I'm game for it if you are. Then, yeah, totally. Too. Yeah, so taking your questions kind of in flip order a little bit. Um, I'm doing uh, opening a gallery in the Mall of America in Minneapolis um, on November first. So <laughs> literally a, approximately a week from now, you know, is when this is in, is going to happen. And the gallery will be open from November 1st until January. Um, I'm going to be in a 4,000 square foot store. It used to be a, uh, an Amazon store. It's on the first floor, South End Mall of America, if you happen to be in the Twin Cities area. And um, I've been invited, I was invited about six years ago into the mall for the first time. 
And the Mall of America is, you know, super high-end mall, incredibly expensive, you know, to get rental space. And no artist has ever made it, you know, in the Mall of America. So the mall sent uh, somebody to art shows uh, to recruit somebody who had some local work, you know, that, you know, thought would have a half-decent chance of making it, right. you know, in the mall. And uh, they offered me a space um, for November and December. And first time I did it, I was scared to death because I looked at the rent per month and it was like, you know, five times what a house payment's going to be. Right. And like, um, and I said, I'm going to go for it. Just going to do it. And um, so jumped, jumped right into it and actually had some success. Next year, I got a little bit bigger store, a little bit bigger store. And this year, it's like the ultimate challenge, you know, 4,000 square feet. Right. But I've just had a ball setting it up and I've got so much work that I still don't have everything up in my 4,000 square foot, you know, gallery. But um, I'm, I'm just dying to show some pieces that I can't show in a normal art show because I don't have enough wall space. And how, um, just how many yeah, pieces, ahead, how many pieces are you going to have in there? Oh, I set things up by collection. So, you know, I've got an ocean collection, a Western collection, a Minnesota, Wisconsin, a Michigan, Chicago. You know, I have not counted them yet. Um, I just oh. haven't done it. I would guess, I don't know, 150 maybe. Oh, wow. Do you have, um, a, do you have a sense for like how much investment you've put into it? In it's a lot. Yeah. It's absolutely a lot. Yeah. And what I'm trying to do is get rid of some of the pieces that I know just don't sell that well. At the art <laughs> so, shows. At the art shows. Yeah, right. honestly. So I'm using this as a way to draw down the inventory a little bit. Because inventory can absolutely kill you. Oh, for and, sure. And I'm not going to be around doing this for 20 more years. So I got to think about, you know, how do I, you know, how do I sell some of these I mean, you're Scandinavian. I mean, isn't that's like built into your whole culture, right? It kind of is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my, yeah I'm, I'm kind of set to go into my 90s probably without too much trouble. But right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So anyhow, that's that's what I'm involved with now, and it's a lot of fun. Um, people that have helped me at art shows before, helped me set up or work in the booth, they're all they're all helping. Everybody's extremely overqualified and seriously underpaid, but they're doing it just because it's fun. And uh, I've got a couple photographer friends in there that I'm trusting to not go in the back room and pull out their pieces, you know. Sure. But, um, yeah. So it's just we make it fun. It's it's a family environment. And I just try to treat everybody with dignity and respect that comes in, comes in the mall. I get homeless people in there and yeah. I get CEOs of major corporations. It's, it's all over the board. Uh, and, sounds uh, like a mall. <laughs> yeah. 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 Awesome. It's super interesting. Well, con uh, congratulations. And uh, hopefully you are able to liquidate your inventory. Yeah. Well, I'm doing this again, so I don't want to liquidate ever quite well, anything. But yet. then but, you'll have, You'll have some money. You can buy more stuff. So yeah, there you go. Yeah. More camera gear, right? <laughs> I was gonna say uh, more prints that you can hang. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Now, two two of the people I want to recommend are are fellow people on the art show circuit, and and I'm not saying their names just because they do well at art shows, but it's because I respect their work, and uh, it's probably the two I most respect in in the Midwest. Um, and one of them, his name is David Barthel, and it's B, spelled B-A-R-T-H-E-L, Barthel. And he's from Minnesota. Um, I consider him the best 
Minnesota photographer. Uh, his North Shore stuff is incredible. He's a former engineer, pretty young guy. I'm guessing 35, 38, something like that. He does all canvas. Um, I work with his printer sometimes as well if I'm doing canvas, but his canvas is beautiful. And then he does all of his own framing as well. Uh, he delivers pieces into people's homes, which is great because you can spot empty walls that, <laughs> that could use something else. Uh, but David, I just have huge respect for him. We are, we've become good friends and uh, uh, he's one I'd recommend. The other one is a guy named Steve Werwerka. His last name is spelled W-E-W-E-R-K-A. And Steve is originally from the Minneapolis area. Now he, he's been on the road full-time for, I'm guessing, four or five years now. Um, lives in a, in a motor home, and he does shows, a lot of shows down south in Florida. He Actually, he runs year-round. So he's up here in the Midwest, some in the summer, and then he's, you know, he's in Arizona. And Steve's work is very simple. Um, a lot of his initial work, and still some of it, was done with an iPhone. And oh, wow. people, yeah, people come up to us, you know, in a, in an art show, and they look at our stuff, and the comment that they'll make that's kind of infuriating to us, and they don't know it, but they'll say, "Oh, you must have a really good camera," right. you know. Hate and that. I hate that. Yep. And I all I feel like saying to them, "Yeah, I bet you're a good cook. You must have a really good stove." Right. You know, I don't I don't say it, but you know, the analogy is there. Absolutely. But anyhow, when people come up to Steve sometimes, they'll say, oh, you must have a really good camera. And then he'll say, yeah, you want to see it? And he'll pull out his iPhone. And some of his best images he's gotten with an iPhone just because he was in the right place, right time. And uh, so his work is pretty simple. He does no icons. Um, hard to catch him in a national park. Um, and he's just got, just got cool stuff. And he's shooting all the time. And, yeah, people might. So I have a lot of respect for him. People might find it hard to believe, but I think there's actually at least one photo in the NLPA book that's was captured with an iPhone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't. I'm not surprised one bit. Yeah, surprised yeah. there aren't more actually. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there and lots of submissions too. Actually, that were very mm-hmm. they ranked very highly. So it, it's yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, especially with the new phones. Oh, they're, they're incredible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. Yeah. Well, awesome, Jay. This has been super fun, and um, we'll definitely put links to all that in the show notes. And wish you the best of luck with the the art fair circuit. And I'm sure you'll run into some of our former guests in those as well, because I think Tim Chapman does a bunch of them. And um, I'm trying to think who else. Alex Burke, I think, does some art fairs. And yeah, there's lots of people who have been on the show that do art fairs. So mm-hmm. it's interesting. Yeah, probably not in yes. Minnesota though. Um, <laughs> no, they they stay away from it sometimes. Like, oh, I've got I would. One guy, <laughs> yeah, I've got one guy that I compete with, and his all of his work is drop shipped, and his smallest piece is probably forty by sixty. I mean, it's just like this gigantic stuff you right. know, that he's got on the walls, and sometimes we'll be close to each other, and he hates it, you know, because. I, I try to make my my work affordable to people. Right. You know, I've got pieces a... at thirty five dollars and you know, a hundred bucks and you know, I don't start at start at four thousand dollars. So Right, it's a completely different uh, clientele. Yeah. 
Well, thank you to Jay for the great conversation this week and for sharing your wisdom with us. If you enjoyed our conversation, please join us for a bonus episode on Patreon where we discuss mindsets for making and selling photography. Patreon is a great way to access bonus content, get access to episodes early for those at the $10 per month level or higher, and to keep the show running. We are approaching our 300th episode, which would not be possible without your generous support. A little goes a long way, so thank you very much. As always, I'd love to hear back from you about anything you gained from listening to the episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please help us by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or by sharing the episode on social media. I appreciate it. Next week, you can look forward to our episode with Pam Dorner and Jennifer Lee Warner as we discuss ethics and wildlife photography. I think you'll really enjoy that one. Okay, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.